I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get shows. And if you like what we're doing, please spread the word. If you'd like a pictorial and caption companion to the podcast, follow at Potabing on Instagram. We still have a few more Soprano Sessions books to give away. So if you're interested, tag Potabing in an Instagram story for a chance to win. And as always, thank you for listening and being a part of this amazing and surreal journey. This is a conversation with New York Times TV editor Jeremy Egner, who recently interviewed David Chase for the show's 20th anniversary. He called me from New York to talk about the piece, the show, and why we still can't get enough of it 20 years later. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. Here's my chat with Jeremy Egner of the New York Times. Jeremy, thanks for doing the podcast. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. So just generally by way of foundation, can you define the mandate of a professional critic? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting because it's an evolving mandate, really. Um, first of all, I, I should say I'm, I'm the TV editor of for The Times. I, I'm not technically a critic. I edit the critics. Uh, but I also do a lot of writing and I also do, you know, recapping of shows. So I do have a critical component to what I do. But, um, but yeah, back to the, the question, the... The mandate has evolved somewhat because TV has evolved. So, so you know, TV has become so much more voluminous. Certainly, you know, and it's at one point the the TV critic was, I think, expected to have a pretty decent grasp on anything of note that was on. And now, in the age of Netflix, that's pretty impossible. Uh, so. But, you know, at the base level, at the sort of story level, I think, you know, TV critics should be, number one, letting you know if a show works, or, or but more importantly, why it does or does not work, and uh, kind of breaking down the reasons, whether the the flaws are in the character development or, you know, the story beats or, or whatever, uh, as well as, you know, I think at its deepest and most satisfying level, criticism sort of reveals how a TV show in this case how, what a TV show tells us kind of about ourselves and, and about sort of our culture. Uh, to use The Sopranos as an example, I think, you know, there are pretty clearly some uh, subtexts of, you know, some cynical takes on kind of our consumerist culture and the, and the way we sort of define ourselves by our, you know, acquisitions and our stuff. And I feel like that was something that just to use one example of, of how, you know, a really great show can sort of reveal, you know, more than its own story, but also kind of the story of us. Yeah. In your recent piece in The Times about the show, The Sopranos, and uh, uh, David Chase, you included a poll quote from 1999 that said, it just may be the greatest work of American popular culture of the last quarter century. We're in 2019 now. How does that statement hold up? <laughs> well, I guess it's, well, it would be 45 years now, I guess, right? Um, I don't know. I, I think that, I think the Sopranos still occupies a pretty rarefied place, uh, certainly in television, but I mean, I think even bef- beyond that, when you sort of look at the whole of, of popular culture, I think it's one of those sort of touchstones uh, over the past, let's say, 50 years, just to sort of put a a uh you know a nice round figure on it um uh, of 
of a creator who had a singular vision who swung over the fences and, you know, connected and, and sort of succeeded, you know, certainly beyond his wildest dreams, but also, you know, kind of redefined what television was capable of for a lot of people. What connected? I like the analogy. As soon as you start doing sports analogies, I get really excited. So he made contact, and we're talking about David Chase. What did he connect with? Yeah, well, I mean, there was a combination of factors, right? It's like, you know, the mob story is one of our, you know, most popular and evocative stories. It's hard to top just at the stakes level because it's life or death, right? You know, um, one bad move and that's it for you. Um, So certainly, you know, the Godfather, the good, good fellas, going back even to sort of old movies like, you know, Public Enemy and things like that. Um, you know, we've always been really captivated by the sort of organized crime mob drama. But what he, what Chase did and what, why it really, I think, connected with, with people to the extent that it did was that it was obviously couched in sort of, you know, regular old suburbia. And so, and Tony's problems were, you know, on the one hand, the problem of a guy who's trying to run a criminal imp- enterprise and and not get killed in the process, but also, you know, a guy who's trying to connect with his teenage kids and, you know, not disappoint his wife and, you know, just deal with his relatives who are a pain in the ass. You know what I mean? So there, there's a real, uh, you know, sympathetic dimension. Even though he's a mob boss, we all kind of got, you know, the things that he was struggling with. Yeah, to quote the show, the regularness of life kept seeping in over and over. Right, exactly. Why are we still talking about the show? Well, I think, you know, in part because of what we were just talking about, it really was exceptional, you know. But I think another reason we're talking about it is because it really became the sort of marker uh, of a new era of television. Um, There had certainly been ambitious shows and uh, complex shows before The Sopranos, you know, whether you're talking about The X-Files or NYPD Blue or Hill Street Blues or, uh, you know, Twin Peaks, certainly. Um, But we don't talk about those. They're not in the vernacular like The Sopranos is. And I'm just kind of curious if you have any, and you're a TV editor, if you have any sort of inkling as to why it's persisting in the way that it has. That makes any sense. Right, yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, you know, Again, one is just it was it was excellent, you know, and it sort of made a real impression because it was television as we hadn't quite seen before. Um, you know, I talked about some of those other shows that have been really complicated, but you know, obviously, The Sopranos didn't have commercials. It didn't have to sort of worry about its you know what they could say and what they could show and all that kind of thing. So it really was a whole new level beyond what we were sort of expecting, or it was really a whole new level beyond what we were used to seeing on television. But then. Beyond that, then you talk about the impact that it's had. And if you look at television, in many ways, there's TV before The Sopranos and TV after The Sopranos. Uh, So even though The Sopranos has been off the air for more than a decade, you see its legacy and its impact and its influence, you know, in shows all over the place. Um, In many ways, it sort of codified the whole notion or the whole template for what we sort of now think of, for lack of a better term, as, as, you know, prestige TV, whether it's, you know, this really deep bench of, of really strong performers, you know, from the top to the bottom, um, this, these cinematic production values, 
even the shorter, like 10 to 13 episode seasons, I mean, those all really got going with the Sopranos and it kind of became the blueprint for so much of the great shows that have come since. Do you attribute the binge culture that we currently live in, do you attribute the Sopranos to being responsible for sort of, if not necessarily breaking down that dam, for certainly playing a role in the success of the Netflixes and the Amazons and the, and the Hulus of the world? Do you see any corollary there? Well, I mean, I see, yeah, in some ways, because the Sopranos, I mean, it's interesting because I, like when I talked to David Chase, I mean, one thing he talked about was that originally he had no interest in doing, you know, continuing stories. He just wanted to do basically a movie of the week. Um, and, and he had to be convinced by other people that that was, you know, no, actually you want a narrative that kind of keeps people coming back. And, and, and of course they became famous for those sort of season long and beyond sort of narratives, which now is, you know, sort of the rule in television. Um, so by sort of showing that people would come back and would be interested and would stick with these sort of long narratives, um, they certainly opened the door for many other, you know, outlets and showrunners and producers to sort of embrace these more ambitious serials. Now, I mean, there's a part of it, uh, part of this whole story is technology, right? Because, you know, whether it's buying DVDs or DVRs or now streaming, there is the capability of people, people, people are able to follow things and if they miss it, they can catch up and all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, back in the nineties and before you, if you missed it, you just missed it, you know, and you have to wait for the rerun, uh, in, in the summer. And so, um, part of the story of The Sopranos is coming, you know, being in the right place at the right time, right? HBO was looking to sort of do ambitious storytelling. There was the technological capability to keep up with more uh, convoluted and complex narratives on television. Uh, And then Chase was, you know, a uniquely positioned person to take, make the most of that. Where did your David Chase conversation take place? Um, well, I had two conversations with him. One was we did a video with him and Edie Falco uh, last month, and um, you know we talked to him then. And then I, I sort of had a longer, more in-depth conversation with him at his apartment on the Upper East Side. How did you approach developing questions for him on a subject he seemingly said everything he has to say? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's sort of the most intimidating thing because you know he's a nice guy. He he can seem sort of aloof. He's fundamentally a polite and accommodating person, at least in my experience he was. At the same time, he's a little intimidating, and you don't want to waste his time, and and he does seem to be the sort of person who doesn't suffer fools. So a lot of times it was sort of like the the almost apologetic, you know, preamble of like, look, I know you've talked about this before, but can we just, you know, get into X, Y, and Z? And, and, uh, you know, sometimes it was just, you know, putting a new spin on topics, that he's discussed before in the hopes that he will say something new, you know? So it's always challenging to interview somebody who's been interviewed a million times. Yeah. Again, that's part of the fascination. And when I first reached out to you, because it is like, uh, one of the things he said that was so definitive a long time ago, that kind of almost turns you off to the notion of having a discussion about it. As he said, with respect to the ending in particular, which I'll ask you about in a moment, it's all there. He said, it's all there. That's his quote. It's all there. Um, but, uh, your impression you're with him face to face, like, does he seem proud of this, the Sopranos or is he kind of over it? Well, I mean, I think he's, proud of it. I mean, how could you not be? Um, there's certain subjects clearly he's tired of talking about, you know, the, the top two, as far as I can tell, being the ending and the Russian in the woods. Um, but 
He's open about the fact that The Sopranos is the thing he's going to be remembered for professionally, and, and he's fine with that, and he's proud of that, and he has a lot of good memories, and he doesn't seem to be somebody who is, like, you know, loath to discuss it. Um, he just, I think, would like to talk about, you know, something besides, you know, the ending in the Russian in the Woods. But um, luckily, the good thing about The Sopranos is that it's such a deep and rich uh, and fertile subject, you there is lots of stuff to talk about. And, you know, there's certain things that he seems more happy to talk about than others. Yeah, I was just talking about it with a friend of mine. Like, there's a David Hockney painting in Irina's room, and um, you could talk about the meaning behind the David Hockney painting for 40 minutes. There's a lot of stuff in the show, to yeah, echo your sure. point. Yeah, it's very good. What's your theory or point of view on the ending? Um, I mean, I'm like most people in that, it's sort of evolved and changed over the years. You know, I was watching the night that it aired for the first time and, and I, you know, I've loved it from the beginning. I, I, I sort of thought just from the jump, I was like, you know, I, I appreciated the audacity of it. Um, because, you know, this is a show that has defied uh, viewer expectations throughout and it was pretty uncompromising in that. And, you know, David Chase has sort of said, you know, the reason they do that is because that's what life does, right? And they were sort of after a more, uh, you know, realistic sense of, of what living feels like, you know, with the show. Uh, that was so often kind of the overarching goal. Um, and then, you know, I thought about, well, this is, this is just... Uh, we were, he's alive, but we were led to believe we were being shown what it's like to be in Tony's skin. Right. You know, that's a fairly common uh, interpretation. It's like that all the tension and the anxiety of constantly having to be on guard and look, you know, look up for every bell that rings and, you know, every person who comes in the door and everybody guy is going to the bathroom next to you. It's just this endless misery of hypervigilance. Um, and then I sort of, switched over to like the Tony is dead crowd because, you know, there always seemed to be this message of like, uh, you know, the fragility of life, you know, and, and I mean, there was, you know, the crazy thing with the Sopranos, though it is a, a sort of a mob show and people are just dying left and right and being thrown out like the garbage, literally like the garbage in some, some cases, um, it was a very humanist show and it did really, you know, it was about the, the importance of the choices you make because, you know, your life, is the result of those choices. And if you make deals with the devil, whether it's being a criminal or whether it's marrying a criminal and looking the other way, a lot of times, I mean, you're sort of, if, if you know, you are hurting your, your own soul. I really felt like that was an undercurrent of, of the show. Um, so I thought that there was going to be, you know, he died the blinking, you know, the, the, the cut to black is sort of the ultimate, uh, example of the fragility of life, right? It's not this big sort of blaze of glory type thing. It just winks out. But I guess, I mean, I was never totally satisfied with all that. The only thing that really satisfied me was when I really kind of realized, at least for myself, that the point is not whether he lived or died. The point is the uncertainty, right? Um, it's the fact that we are all kind of walking around without most of us knowing when it's going to come for us. Um, and life is really about not only coming to grips with that, but it's about coming to grips with the fact that your choices are kind of all you have, right? Yeah. So in the end, it, it sort of makes you aware. I mean, and, and all that tension and the sort of the, the, you know, meadow parking, you know, on the one hand, it's like, oh my God, somebody's going to die. But on the other, it just makes you aware of the passage of time. It works on this sort of super uh, elevated level. You know, your heart is beating fast. You're aware of your heartbeat. You're aware of your life in that sort of, you know, crucible of tension. Um, 
and you're aware of like why Tony is so so vulnerable and why he deserves it. You know what I mean? So it's like at the end it got kind of like heady for me, but that sort of is, was my takeaway. It was like it made me think about what it means to sort of have a life and what the responsibility of that is. And, and, you know, it was almost kind of hopeful, right. To think, you know, it is in my power. I can sort of take the steps I need to take to sort of live the sort of life I want to live. Well said, you know, it's funny if you spend enough time with the show, you waffle back and forth between both theories, you know, like sometimes you're wrestling, right, right. you know, it depends on what, what month it is or depends on how, how good your year has been. Um, it's, it's fascinating just to contemplate it. And I don't think it's ever going to get old because the ambiguity of life that is just that, just like you said, the uncertainty, there is no right answer. Even though in the book, the new book that just came out, he involuntarily apparently admitted it to it being a death scene. Um, it doesn't really change much in terms of whether it is or isn't. Sure. Yeah. And I'll be curious. I saw some of those headlines. I've, I've sort of flipped through that, that book. I haven't sort of read it in detail. I mean, what I read was really interesting, but I'd be interested in, to, to hear what those guys say about it because my understanding was that he, originally there was going to be a death scene of him like going into New York. Yes. Right. Yeah. And then yeah, not coming back. Tunnel. And then, yeah. And then, you know, he sort of walked it back a little bit and said, Oh, I decided to do something different. So I, you know, I mean, to my mind, the uncertainty aspect I was talking about earlier, I always kind of felt like that might, that would be a reason why he would be so adamant about not sort of saying one way or the other, right? Because if he's trying to preserve the power of, of that uncertainty, you know, because if he says, you know, he's dead or he's alive or whatever, even though it seems like the easiest thing in the world to do, it does sort of put a, a cap on it, a, a more specific and tangible cap. And he's not want to do that. He does not like putting bows on things. And so right. why would he put a bow at the very end? He didn't put a bow in season right. one when we're trying to figure out if Jimmy Altieri's a rat or not. There was no bow there. So why would there be <laughs> sure. a bow at the finale? Actually, he's quite genius when you think about it. Um, tell me, when, did talking with David change anything about the show for you? Um, you know, not really i mean it, it was it was you know it was validating in some ways i mean you know i sort of gave him a much abbreviated version of the sort of like ending theory that i just gave you and you know and he was he was pretty you know supportive of that and uh you know one thing we talked about that didn't make it into the interview was just sort of the spiritual seeking uh quality of the show um and just you know all the all the characters who have these sort of out of body or otherworldly experiences whether it's you know um Chris in the in the vision of purgatory after he got shot or 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 Polly and the cat you know and mm-hmm. um and certainly you know uh Tony's various you know vision quests and things like that and um and you know he talked about yeah he's like it was totally a, a, a spiritual a spiritually seeking show you know it was like he was fascinated with those sorts of things he wanted the same kind of answers everybody wanted you know it's like you know what's important how do you live a good life and I mean originally he wanted to make Tony a Buddhist and um because that was a uh, you know something he had been interested in and uh you know ultimately decided that would be kind of weird and not work out but then you know still at the by the end of the show he realized how much of sort of like uh, you know, Buddhist influence thought and concepts had kind of like made its way into the show without him really trying to. So he kind of felt like there was a weird spiritual dimension to that. So, um, which again, that's an example of the sort of thing he, he's happy to talk about and seems interested in talking about, um, when it 
pertains to The Sopranos. I got a chance to talk to Michael Imperioli. He was on this podcast, and mm. um, we spent the lion's share of the conversation on Eastern philosophy and, and spirituality, and he um, he attested that a lot of it, he wrote five of the episodes on the show, and he said that he and David would talk about spirituality all the time. So it's it's uh, it's actually quite a nice, the, 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 the notion that it's all about the mafia and killing people, and um, that was all very ancillary. I see it kind of, yeah. there's all this other stuff going on, like David Hockney paintings, for example. It's all the intention behind all the little details are kind of what sets it apart in my mind and so many the minds of so many others. Right. Yeah. And and you know the the thing is about the mob about the mob framework is I mean we talked a little bit about that. He said the reason he wanted to do a mob show is because he wanted to have a lot of Italian Americans in it. Sure. And that's sort of that's the genre that that you know they're most closely associated with, which is kind of a little ironic when you think about you know the criticism it received over the years for how it you know, uh, depicted Italian Americans, but, um, from a commerciality standpoint, right? Like it's the low hanging fruit. That genre is commercial for TV film. And if you want to include and insert all these other things like subtext and, you know, deep thinking ideas, you need a scaffolding to do that. And, and Italian American heritage is endlessly fascinating to, to viewers. I mean, it makes, it made total sense. Sure. Yeah. And it is a way to sort of sneak in a lot of things too, right? Exactly. You bring in people who like mob shows and they're having to think about Buddhism, you know? And, it, <laughs> and again, that was another thing that became like a template for other shows in the way that, you know, like Deadwood's a Western, right? But, you know, it's, it's really about, you know, how savage, you know, how, how savagery and civilization just kind of like sit uneasily beside one another, you know? And, uh, you know, the shield is a, is a cop show, but it's, you know, this totally moral, morally complicated, terrible person at the heart of it. Um, so in that way, by taking like these really well-known genres and turning them to something much more sort of considered and heady, uh, the Sopranos kind of laid the groundwork for that too. When you asked him what it would take to bring it back, you were in the room. Did you believe his answer? You know, I did. I mean, with with the caveat that he's working on a Sopranos thing now, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, but you know, he's, he seemed very adamant about the fact. And I, I, I sort of asked him and I don't remember if this made it into the final edit or not, but you know, Netflix is like bringing back everything. And it just seems like they would want, they would just fly him with as much riches as it took yeah. uh, to do that. Um, but he said he's never been approached and he never would. Um, for a long time, it was like, he wouldn't even, deal with mob stuff because I, that was of course a lot of offers coming his way after the Sopranos edit. Um, but obviously he's changed his mind on, on that because he's, he's in the, uh, the, the mini saints of Newark, uh, development right now. Um, uh, but yeah, I believed him that he wouldn't bring back the story of the Sopranos, but you know, clearly he's returning to that universe and feels like there's more stories to be told in that realm. One of the things we do on the podcast is that could a Netflix series be spun off on the basis of this episode and what would it look like? (laughs) And we, uh, we come up with at least five or six ideas. So it's, there's definitely ideas like the universe is, can be extremely vast, especially with those, uh, one episode introduced characters, you know, that come in, that paint some color to the canvas of the story and then are, you know, either unceremoniously exited or. Sure. Yeah. No, I like, I would watch you know, uh, a 20 episode series about like Richie in, in prison. You know what there I mean? you go. There you're, it's exactly <laughs> the Richie prequel is a 10 episode yeah, limited exactly. series waiting to happen. And the, you know, the overhead, the production costs would be low. You'd just be inside all the time. And they just made Dan Amora, you know, they probably have that set somewhere. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, you could do it in the same vein as like Dan Amora and just have right. Rich, Richie as one of the cellmates or one of the inmates. Uh, see, again, this is why it's so fun because the characters are so rich and diverse, even though they may not be with us for six seasons. I don't think you see that in too many other shows. 
Right. You know, it is it is a, temp, uh, a testament to just the sort of the density of the show and and just so how, how like you said how rich those characters are you know and and it did feel like that became the thing that shows tried to do it used to be you only cared about like the, the the top three or four people in the cast but you know every character that would show up even if it was like for a two episode arc you know it, they just had this really uh deep lived in quality yeah. um and you see that same that same approach with things like mad men who obviously matt weiner wrote for the sopranos for a while or you know again deadwood shows like that they were you know, they would have these vast casts full of people who all felt like people. Yeah, yeah. Michael Imperioli referred to it as a deep bench, which is very apt, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. In your piece, he mentioned James Gandolfini's foibles. That was the word that was used. Do you have any sense about what he meant by that? Uh, you know, the sense that I got just from, I mean, he didn't really go into it. He didn't want to go into it, you know, which... You, you would expect, but you know, it's like you work with somebody for a long time, especially somebody who, you know, is by, you know, by most accounts was pretty tired of the show by the end. And, you know, I think there probably was just a lot of getting tired of the guy that you're, you've seen every day for the past seven years. Now, this is pure speculation. I, I don't have any kind of like inside information about that, but I mean, I guess that was the sense and he didn't really want to like clarify, you know, sure. kind of, he kind of, you know, shrugged off that, the follow-up question about that, but, um, a good interviewer knows when not to check the interviewee. <laughs> right. Right. What's your favorite episode and why? Um, you know, the one that, you know, there's, there's a lot of them, obviously. I mean, White Caps is the one that people talk about a lot. It has that sort of cast of its quality, um, which is sort of, I mean, it was lurking around the margins of that show the whole time, but that it really sort of brought it to the fore, and it feels like it paid off a lot of, uh, you know, four years of, like, why is she still with this guy? You know what I mean? There was that question hanging over the show, and they answered it in a sort of more, uh, or they addressed it anyway in a more sort of satisfying way than you would have guessed. But I really think my favorite episode, the one, that, the one that I always sort of think about, is uh, the night, night in white satin armor, mm-hmm. um, just because it encapsulated so much about what I love about the show. I mean, just from starting with that crazy ballroom dance scene, you know, love it. people talk, people talk about like the, the the dream sequences of The Sopranos, and obviously that was a big component of it. But even when they weren't explicitly dream sequences, they, you would have this kind of dream like atmosphere through so many of the shows and the the episodes. Uh, And that was one of the most sort of indelible examples for me where, you you know, these people come dancing through and you don't know what's happening. And then you see like Janice and Tony's ass, right. Which is like, just totally deflates the, the majesty of what you've been watching. And, and just that whole, you know, the whole fact that the season seemed to be building between the, up to this conflict between, Tony and Richie only to have Janice like suddenly and quickly in that whole thing. And, uh, the, um, the, uh, you know, then Chris and Fury are having to sort of clean up the mess and, you know, he carving him up in satriales or whatever. And he's like, you know, remind me, remind me not to eat satriales for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like that, that sort of morbid comedy and the sort of beauty. I mean, even back to like, the, I believe the fight, the final, Music cue is like this eurythmic song. It's really great. You know, Love it. it it just every sort of note felt like it it, it encapsulated uh, the Sopranos at its best. And you know, the thing that really stuck with me is sort of like the very end when Tony's putting you know Janice on the bus, and you can sort of like, I mean, the actors of the show were tremendous, most of them, and and those two certainly were were terrific and i mean you just felt the weight of all the history and all the complicated emotions and you know and all of the 
the just the the, the unspoken um, bonds and and torment and all that stuff between those two and their entire family was just sort of right there on the screen in the hug or in the sort of send off to the bus. It's just it was amazing to me when I watched it. And I've gone I've watched it probably six or seven times since, and it's always just like incredibly moving. The bus station is a is an amazing trope to air out family laundry or like you know family drama. Yeah, it's a great right. it's a great right. forum. Um, and I also love that in that scene how you have the new modern building of the bus station uh, juxtaposed with that like rusty bridge right behind it. This like yeah, it just it just true. could be potentially accidental, but it was just it was just too obvious to not notice the the contrast. Was that also the episode when when Tony fell down and Livia laughs at him? Yes. Yeah, I mean, and to me that was like the mo- the most indelible sort of moment in their relationship, right? It just yeah. sort of like encapsulated it in, you know, one second of action, you know, her cruelty and his sort of like fumbling feelings of, of, uh, um, unworthiness and like, you know, inferiority, uh, all in one just trip on the stairs. She laughed twice in her life, right? She laughed when they were young and uh, Johnny boy fell that was, and she laughed. That was an anecdote that, that Tony tells Dr. Melfi. And then we come uh-huh. full circle with she witnessing her son fall in the same, in a similar fashion. And she laughs and smiles then too. So it was nice. Book, yeah. It was nice book ending. Super great episode. I'm glad you said that. You also mentioned white caps, which is my favorite. It's kind of the obvious one, but I just love the buildup like you described, but it's interesting that TV critics in general consider the fourth season to be the weakest, but the finale of the fourth season is the, is this heralded episode. I, it's just an interesting. Uh, there's an interesting dichotomy there. Yeah, that is interesting. And I should say, I, I before you know when the anniversary was coming up, um, I you know I went back. I knew I was going to be talking to some of these folks, and so I rewatched you know a lot of them. But I didn't do. I've never done like a full re- rewatch of the entire series. Yeah, I watched it when it ran, and then I've seen you know specific episodes many times, but I haven't sat back down to go back all the way through it uh, since. So that's, I'm kind of looking forward to doing that at some point, maybe when my daughter's old enough to watch the show. Oh, I can't wait to do that with my son. Yeah. It's, it's another, re- another reason to watch the show, but it's just to, get, to be able to experience it through uh, new fresh eyes. It will be great. Right. Exactly. Um, so last question. Um, thank you so much for your time. Again, this has been great. Sure. That's been fun. What recent shows out there come in the vicinity of the Sopranos? Um, you know, it's interesting because to me, the most sort of, uh, direct descendant of the Sopranos right now, um, is Atlanta. And, um, I don't know that I've never talked to Donald Glover. I don't, I don't know that he is, you know, uh, a fan of the Sopranos. I don't know if he's ever watched the Sopranos, but just that sort of like singular vision, uh, that dream logic, uh, around the edges and occasionally right in the foreground, the sense that anything could happen and it and it fits within that universe. The the sense of being kind of privy to, you know, a a well established ongoing world that you just check in on like thirty minutes a week. Um, I don't know all the whole the whole sense of like a, a dreamy auteurist, uh, you know, dramedy. Uh, that is both the best drama and the best comedy some weeks, you know, on television. It's, um, to me, that's the most sort of like, even though the shows have nothing superficially, uh, nothing alike superficially, uh, it seems like the one that really follows in its footsteps more than most. Hmm. I like that. The On any given night, it's either the best drama or the best comedy. That's 
never even thought about it that way because The Sopranos is in many ways a comedy. Yeah. I like that a lot. Jeremy, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. 